but I'll uh, take you're talking it. about the the German Luftwaffe. For, yes. for a second there, I almost thought you were going to say a Luftwaffle. And I was thinking, flying pancakes? German Luftwaffles? What are we talking about? Shops or breakfast? <laughs> Somebody's hungry. <laughs> I'm sure bacon's going to enter the conversation at some point, too. <laughs> bacon. Oh, indeed. Shoot the core, cast. Welcome to Shoot the Corecast, the official companion podcast to the RF Generation Shmup Club. This is a family-friendly shmup-themed podcast that serves flying pancakes with two eggs sunny side up. As always, I'm Addicted, also known as Addicted to Shmups, and with me... I am Metal Fro, also known throughout other parts of the web as the Game Boy Guru. And this month, we're going to be taking a look at Strikers 1945... Number two. But before we get to that, let's take a look at our sponsor, RF Generation. We have the community playthrough, which we just did for the month of July with Strikers 1945 2. I'd like to also thank the Playcast. They're playing the, their game for July was Super Mario Land 1 and 2, I believe, correct? Yes, it was. So that was right up my alley, of course. Oh, I wish I had a chance to play, but I got too hooked on Strikers. <laughs> At rfgeneration.com, we have a database of tons and tons of games. I'm trying to remember how many they have on there. I know it's in the tens of thousands on there. And they, they have, it's oh, not yeah. just USA-based. It's They have Japanese, they have Brazilian, and variants, all sorts of stuff in there. So if you're trying to... Make sure that your collection is up to date and has everything that you need to have in there. Definitely take a look at rfgeneration.com. And speaking of rfgeneration.com, they're currently running a NES challenge where they're trying to beat the entire NES license library within a year. That's run by Crabmaster2000. Yes, and um, I want to say that someone said the other day that that uh, we are somewhere in the neighborhood of about two-thirds of the way through the library. All right. Congratulations. We're, we're about on schedule, but maybe slightly ahead. Uh, and so definitely if, uh, if you like old NES games and there may be a couple in your backlog that you want to play and you know knock off the list, check it out and see if uh, anything that we've got that hasn't been beat yet is something that you want to tackle. Yeah, if you want to tackle something easy like Xanic. <laughs> Just kidding on that one. All right. So, as we mentioned, the, the RF Generation Shmup Club played Strikers 1945-2 for the month of July. <clears throat> that includes the arcade Saturn PlayStation, which in the PlayStation version in the U.S. is called Strikers 1945 because the first one never came out. There's the PS2 collection that came out in Japan that includes... The 1945 1 and 2, and of course, the Switch. 
there i ended up trying this on the saturn to start but then i switched over to the ps2 i found that the controller i have for my saturn needs to be fixed up a little bit so it's a little bit easier for me to use the dual shock what versions did you play uh primarily the sega saturn version through most of the month uh, and then after i moved into my new apartment i set up the switch and uh streamed that a couple of times and uh I actually played that in Tate mode. Nice. You using the flip grip for that? No, uh, streaming it that way. So I had my my vertical monitor set up and then uh, played on that and then, you know, did the stream that way. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Pretty cool. I got to try that out one of these days. Would you like to take a look at our participants for the month? Absolutely. So we had myself, Metal Fro, and of course, Addicted. We also had Zoido. Easy Racer, Vic Viper Mark II, Duke Togo, Mr. Stubbs, Coin Tengoku, Chris Tap76, and then a couple of participants, participants via Twitter in Nefarious Wes and Sir Flash. And so, uh, as we've been doing the last couple of months, uh, completely and totally ripping off and copying the playcast. Uh, we're doing a question of the month. So earlier today I tweeted out and I said, What shmup do you know is objectively well designed, but you can't get into it, and why? And got some, some good responses on that. At Fran underscore Fricky under, on Twitter there uh, says, Raiden Saga, especially three. And by Raiden Saga, I, I just assume he means the entire Raiden uh, mainline series. He says, perfect controls, perfect gunplay, but can't understand and prevent the blanking en enemy patterns. Uh, can't dodge a single wave of bullets in this saga. Butterfingers. I believe the bosses are massive bullet sponges. Feel every combat like an endless panic room. And uh, I can identify with that because uh, riding boss fights are always uh, a little bit... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? They're always a little bit intense, you know? I would use the word panic-inducing. <laughs> ah, yes. Well, that, that tracks. Uh, Steven Eider, uh, at Steven Eider, says, Bullet hells in general. Just too much work for me. Can't enjoy any of the art either. Just bullet designs everywhere. And I know he's not the only one. You know, Duke Togo has said that he's not keen on bullet hell games. He enjoys watching them, but in terms of playing them, I know he's said in the past that he's just not not adapted well to them. Um, Zoido, who joined us on the playthrough, tweeted uh, at me and said, Radiant Silver Gun. I always mix up the different weapons, miss enemy formations, and run into walls. And uh, I haven't put that much time into Radiant Silver Gun, but I have the digital version on the Xbox 360, and I can totally understand where he's coming from, because there are so many different weapons in the game, it's easy to get confused as to which button fires which weapon, and then kind of figuring out what weapon works best in, in different scenarios. And so it's easy to use the wrong weapon and then get hit by a bullet because you didn't take out the enemy that hit you with that bullet with the right weapon soon enough. So I can definitely identify with Zoido on that. 
Uh, Kiwi BB33 says, Ikaruga seems to be a popular answer of late. I don't feel this way, but I know a lot of people do. And uh, Mark MSX echoed that and says Ikaruga for sure, although he didn't explain why. So I'll have to give him a hard time about that. Uh, and then EC2151 says, For me at the moment, it's Battle Garega. It still hasn't clicked with me, or any Yagawa game, to be honest. So, some interesting responses there. Um, Ikaruga, I kind of expected, but Raiden was uh, an interesting one, I thought. And Battle Garega, I understand, but that's kind of one of the one of those games that's considered a holy grail shoot-em-up by a lot of the hardcore shooter community. And so it's interesting that... Uh, that that one, you know, made the list. Yeah, what would you say your answer to be? You know, it's weird because I came up with this question and I tweeted mm-hmm. it out and then I've been racking my brain <laughs> since <laughs> then trying to figure out what my answer is. And I'm not sure that I have a concrete answer for it. I, I can say that I, I haven't played any of them yet, but I will say that I haven't generated enough interest for myself in the Toho series yet. Uh, I do want to play them at some point, but the characters and the aesthetics in the games just don't appeal to me that much. And so some of what draws a lot of people into the Toho community doesn't really do much for me. So for me, it's going to be, you know, either we pick one of those games to do for a, a monthly playthrough or you know, I just go and get one and play it so that I can kind of have that experience. Mm-hmm. But right now, uh, that w- is what I have to say because I just don't have any interest in kind of the peripheral stuff around the Toho community, or at least uh, the Toho game designs and, and characters and the story and all that stuff. Okay. Yeah, uh, Toho is something that I definitely want to at least try. Yeah, I'm not sure I understand it by any stretch of the imagination, but definitely want to try it. I, as, for, as far as my answer, I would have to say Kingdom Grand Prix. I tried this, and everyone was praising how well they love this. And I was trying, and I'm like, I, I just couldn't get into it. And then I looked up online going, what, am I missing something? And sure enough, I was playing it wrong. So I'm going to give it another chance and go back to it. <clears throat> but I was playing it more like a traditional, oh. excuse me, traditional shooter instead of playing it more like a racer. And I was always getting last place going, what am I doing? This is no fun. Uh, But for me, it was just not me grasping, at least I believe right now, not grasping the game's mechanics very well. We'll find out. Yeah, I can can go with you on that. When I I first started dabbling in uh, emulation way back, kind of in the early days of MAME, and... uh, um, Shupu Mahu, uh, Mahou Daisakusen um, was first emulated, I kind of played around with it a little bit because, again, on um, the shmups.com site, I'm not sure if it was even shmups.com at that point, but it was it was the website that was uh, that's associated with the shmups forum. And I know there was a lot of, of high praise for the game on the forum, and I think somebody did a review of it based on probably the Saturn version, and I messed around with it, and I knew that it had that racing mechanic in it, but I couldn't quite wrap my head around it, and so I never really went back to it. Um, so yeah, that that's one of those games that 
I would like to go back to at some point and give it some serious time. Uh, but unfortunately, the I think the Saturn version is the only port it ever got, and I haven't priced it lately, but I suspect it's not cheap. Well, the Saturn version, last time I checked, and this was, you know, just what I can pull off the top of my head here, I think it was like between 60 and 70, which isn't oh. terribly high considering what most STGs go for, but it's high enough that it's going to give people pause. Yeah, that's that's not bad. Well, then maybe next year. We'll take a look. Hmm, yeah. So, if you don't mind, let's start us off with Strikers 1945 and Psycho. Yeah. So, Strikers 1945-2 was developed and published by Psycho. Um, they started out in 1992 and were made up of some former employees of Visco Systems, uh, in particular, part of the team that worked on the first uh, Arrow Fighters or Sonic Wings game. Uh, and so that's why you see a lot of similarities between Arrow Fighters and the early Psycho games uh, in terms of their design and, and kind of how they flow. I would have to say that the design resemblance is very well shown within the first Strikers 1945. <laughs> Two is sort of oh, its yeah. own game, which we'll get into. But the first one, you're like, wow, is this a, is this, did someone make Arrow Fighters 4? and and they just forgot it and changed the name, right? And you get that, you get that as well in uh, in Gunbird, the very first Gunbird game, and also uh, Tengai. And so, uh, Psycho, of course, is well known for their shooting games, uh, and that was kind of the dominant genre that they focused on. Well, that and adult mahjong games. Um, they had multiple series during their run. The uh, Tengai or Sengoku series, um, which was kind of three different games that consisted of one vertical shmup and two side-scrollers, one of which technically came out after Psycho was defunct, uh, which was Sengoku canon on the PSP. Uh, there's the Striker series, which of course is Strikers 1945, uh, 1 through 3, uh, and then Strikers 1999, and Strikers 1945 Plus, which came out on the Neo Geo hardware, and kind of turned the otherwise Tate game into what you might call a, a Yokovert or a vertizontal type of game, where it's a vertical scrolling, but it uses the horizontal aspect ratio. Uh, and then also the Gunbird series, which is, of course, Gunbird 1 and 2, and you might peripherally count Gunbarish. Psycho shoot 'em ups are well-renowned for their fast bullets, sizable hitboxes, and bullet swarms that border on the bullet hell style without quite reaching that level. You know, you have bosses that'll shoot out large waves of bullets that they're not so dense that you're, that you're struggling to weave between them, um, but because your ship has a larger hitbox, it makes it feel a little bit more like that. Um, and of course, with fast bullets, that uh, ups the uh, the excitement and also the uh, <laughs> panic factor. Uh, in 2002, Psyche was acquired by Xnots. Uh, they've been using the name, uh, but then other development teams apparently developed games under the Psycho name, or the Psycho name was put on their their games. 
So the aforementioned Sengoku Canon and then Strikers 1945 Plus were both published as Psycho games, but they weren't actually developed by the Psycho team who had handled those franchises previously. Uh, Psycho did collaborate with Capcom on a couple occasions. The Dreamcast version of Gunbird 2 notably featured uh, the Darkstalkers character Morrigan as a playable character, and so that was kind of a bonus for owning the Dreamcast version. And then also the game Cannon Spike, uh, known as Gunspike in Japan, has several playable Capcom characters featured in it, such as Mega Man, Kami from the Street Fighter series, and Arthur from the Ghosts and Ghouls or Makaimura series. Um, most of the Psycho Shoot 'em Up library has now been republished in digital form on the Nintendo Switch over the last year or so from publisher Zero Div. Uh, the exceptions to that would be Zero Gunner, which has never seen a console release, and technically Zero Gunner 2, because the publisher claims that the source code has been lost. Um, what they did instead is they created Zero Gunner 2 Minus, which essentially was them rebuilding the game from the ground up for the Switch release. And so there are differences between the original Zero Gunner 2 arcade and Dreamcast releases and what we got on the Switch uh, because of that situation. Um, Arc System Works has published three physical volumes in the Asia region, um, each having four games on it. Uh, and so those uh, digital releases that we've been seeing on the eShop have a physical form there. Uh, and then there's a Japanese version. Uh, well, the Asia releases have English language support. And then there's a separate two-volume Japan region physical release uh, that is, um, from what I understand, supposed to come with some additional materials like some poster replicas and art materials and things like that. Yeah, those. Two, the first one of that just came out last month. Oh. oh, no, I'm sorry. It was a couple weeks ago, right? I'm not sure, 100%. Okay. The first volume came out pretty recently as of this recording on there, and the second one's due out, I believe, in a couple weeks on there. The uh, three, initial three volumes were published by Play Asia, or came out via Play Asia, and then these two are Japanese only. As you mentioned, they come out with stuff like... Uh, Mark, Mark bezel or marquee uh, sticker sheets and stuff they will put on top of the cabinet to give them instructions on on how to play the game. Mm, yes, yeah. And so Zero Div and City Connection, who now owns Zero Div and is, I guess, the current IP owner, they've announced development of Strikers 2020, uh, a new entry in the series that is planned for release both in the arcade and multi-platform. And from what I understand, they are targeting a release next year. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if they can if they can pull that off and get that done. And then also what that's going to look like. You know, whether it'll use modern, sort of current planes in, in similar fashion to what Strikers 3 did, or you know, if they'll go a different direction and make it futuristic. So that'll be interesting to see. And taken from Wikipedia here, the story for the game uh, is continuing where the last game ended. The forces of C-A-N-Y, or Kenny, 
have been demolished by the Strikers. However, a faction known as the FGR now has the canny technology and plans to initiate global warfare with massive mecha technology. Once again, the Strikers are called into action to save the world. Uh, and essentially, it's a it's like a post World War II um, alternate reality kind of thing where after World War II. We're all friends, and so, <laughs> um, so you essentially have all these different fighter planes from different countries who are involved in World War II fighting alongside one another to take down these uh, sort of terrorist organizations. Yeah, so and the sorry, the terrorist organization. The first game, um, I forget what the story, but they were fighting for to militarize the world or something like that. And this time it's pretty much, hey, we're going to go fight some aliens and blow up some aliens. <laughs> it's kind of like that, hey, yeah. So, it's hey, ludicrous, but... Hey, it's not uh, spaceships coming from the moon, right? In the era of great <laughs> chaos? Exactly. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's an interesting kind of side story in the same way that you think of, you know, some of the some of the kind of steampunk stuff that you see like steel empire or, or different things where it's sort of an alternate reality. What if we had gone this direction technology wise? Uh, and so it's kind of interesting to think about, but yeah, like most shoot 'em up plots, it's pretty flimsy. Yeah. I mean, it's very much uh, romanticized stuff. It's like the stuff that you see, you know, Sky Kid in the world of, well, Sky Kid is an NES game, but you know, or Sky Captain, the world of tomorrow in this type of fiction that you see with uh, Crimson Skies that came out by Microsoft on there where you had Sky Pirates battling it out with these fictional propeller planes. It, it's, it's the same reason that all the serials from the 1930s work so well, and then we saw them again with Indiana Jones, that sort of sense of adventure and, and romanticism with that era of technology that works so well and sure. it's perfect for it's perfect for video games and this type of stuff where everybody is a friend and we've got this special task force global task force you know not not quite rainbow six level but we've got this special task force called strikers and they're gonna go Save the world. Yeah. Well, and, you know, that kind of transitions nicely into into talking about kind of the meat of what, what the attraction for the game is. Because one of the cool things about the game is that it uses uh, a number of actual aircraft that are from kind of that World War II era. Um, and so, you know, there are six different planes you can choose from uh and yeah they're all based on aircraft that were either used during world war ii or were developed around that time there's a couple of planes that were sort of experimental or prototype craft that never actually saw combat um but it's interesting to think about those planes had they been fully developed and actually produced um, you know, what What would that have been like to utilize those planes in this kind of scenario? And so this game kind of posits that. 
Yeah, I th- think it, it does a really good job of pulling in experimental or even stuff that was on the drawing board. And puts in and goes, hey, what if we attach some rockets and we give, gave it this and we made it go pew pew? It, it definitely draws upon the imagination and, and as previously mentioned, the romanticism with that that area era of the propeller or the propeller planes. Right, because World War II essentially was um, basically the the last gasp of propeller planes in terms of being used for major major military offenses. After that, everything started to u- to move toward jet engine technology. Yeah, no more pancakes. <laughs> well, speaking of. We have the. Let's start off by taking a look at the roster on there. We have starting off. We have the P thirty eight Lightning, not to be confused with Super Ace. It's blue, not green, <laughs> so it's not copyright infringement. All right, so the P thirty eight Lightning comes with a strong forward attack that is focused directly in front of the plane. Its secondary weapon, and the secondary weapons are the weapons that you use by holding down the shot button are homing missiles that fire automatically once at least one power-up is obtained. And we'll get into how power-ups are obtained in some of the mechanics in a little bit further. We have the bomb attack, which is a Mustang attack formation. If I remember correctly, it does sort of the 1943 loop on there as well. Is that correct? Um, yeah, I think you're right. No, uh, 1943, the Loopmaster. Uh, <laughs> the char- <laughs> well, that, That's probably about... Was it 1943? That, no, 1943 did the Lightning. 1942 was the one that, that flipped around. Well, Sorry, I had they those all backwards. flipped around, actually. They all flipped around. Oh, okay. When you, when you use that, uh, that loop uh, deal, you know, instead of a bomb, there was that loop maneuver. So even 1942 had that. Uh, that brings up PTSD. No, uh, let's keep moving on here. <laughs> so, with the, with the charge attack, sorry, with the bomb attack, we have the Mustang attack formation, which does the loop. And with the charge attack, we have frame type two missiles, level one and two, and one ton bomb at level three. I never did get to try the one ton bomb at level three, but I definitely did see the type two missiles. There, the P thirty eight Lightning is piloted by Cindy Volton, as was the same pilot in the first game. You know, I sort of wonder on here if, as is such as the Aero Fighters Legacy, why they didn't lean maybe a little bit more into that, and then put in the like a picture of the pilot, because it would have been funny as all heck to see the like you you see a dolphin piloting the Spitfire or something like that. Go. I mean, if you're already fighting aliens with propeller planes, and this is sort of romanticized uh, fiction on here, why not? Why not go all the way? Yeah, I don't know. They, they, uh, I guess they decided not to, not to ape their previous work too much. Yeah, maybe it was too. Yeah, maybe it was too far. Somebody goes, <clears throat> you know. That dolphin, that dolphin flying the plane, that's a little too far. Let's dial it back. (laughs) 
Anyways, the P-38 Lightning was a product of the Lockheed Corporation and was integral in numerous campaigns during World War II, often used as a bomber or long-range escort fighter. It wasn't nimble enough to be useful for dogfighting, but was useful enough in multiple other ways, and was the only plane to be manufactured during the entirety of the United States participation—excuse me participation during World War II. It has a very iconic look. Everybody knows what the P-38 looks like. There, I mean, anyone oh, who's played 1942, surely, but... Yeah, it, it's it's one of those that everybody's going to look at and go, Oh, yeah, I know exactly what this is. Yeah. Now, several and, iterations... Yes? Oh, I was going to say, just to, just to quickly dovetail on something you said earlier on the one-ton bomb... I did get that up to level three a few times when I was using that ship, and it's an awesome weapon. You basically drop a, a large bomb on the enemy, and then it creates a field effect with this really long explosion that stops bullets and causes damage. Oh, nice. Anytime you can have a weapon that bullet cancels, that is extremely helpful, especially when you get to the mid-sized enemies or with the bosses on there. Is they give that sort of quasi or damaku light spread that, as we talked about earlier with the Psycho games, go by really quick. And so I'm going to have to try that out because that would help make this plane a little bit more of a viable option for me. Yeah. So uh, several iterations of P-38 were created during the course of the war with many subtle improvements made to the craft during the way. A handful of later P-38L variant were specially painted and outfitted to make them capable of nighttime incursions and were dubbed Night Lightning Fighters. Well, that's a tongue twister, but I like it. <laughs> there, all right. We're moving on to the second plane, selectable plane, and this is the one that is most memorable on the series. I mean, the P-38 is something that... Everyone's seen, but it has appeared again in with the 19XX series. But this, of course, we are referring to your favorite of mine, the F5U Flying Pancake. That's right. Now, th now this pancake is armed with a forward cannon and slight outward spread as it's powered up. It says forward cannon here, but it, it's more like a laser shot. Sure. There. The, I, I, it, it, you know, it, if anything in this game is going to go pew pew, it's definitely the shot from this, from the flying pancake. Uh, the secondary weapon is a homing laser that increases in number as you collect power up icons. It's sort of funny to see this thing that almost looks like a manta ray just flying through the sky, and you see these little lasers <laughs> coming out of it in all different directions as it's powered up. I mean, <sighs> The, this, uh, of course, was the one that I, I went to first when I started the game. Is this the same thing for you? Yeah. Um, Did you? Yeah, th this was, when I first played the game, this was the ship that I went toward immediately because it, I thought it looked cool, and as soon as I saw the homing lasers, I was like, yep, I gotta have homing lasers. <laughs> <laughs> Can't disagree with that. All right, the bomb attack for the Flying Pancake is the XB-35 Buster Formation. They're large B-2 bomber-like planes that come through and pretty much block any of the shots on there. 
most of the time when when you're going to be dealing with the bomb attacks on there it's going to be to mitigate the bombs the excuse me the bullet spread that the bosses are dropping at least that's what i use the bombs for i know we'll get a little bit more of that further down the line with the mechanics but i'm assuming that you were doing the same thing oh absolutely uh, there were certain bosses that had bullet spreads that i found to be quite difficult to dodge through or around and so um yeah that i was try i would try to time the bomb attack so that right when they were getting ready to do that or as they were starting to do that i was activating the bomb to ward off those bullets and then give myself uh, a few seconds of respite to um, be able to kind of pelt them with a charge weapon or something. Definitely. And speaking of charge weapons, the charge attack for the flying pancake is the buster laser. Level one is a single laser beam that fires straight ahead. Level two is a dual beam on either side of the plane. And level three is a large beam that deflects enemy fire and lasts a long time. Definitely, definitely have fun with this thing. Very impressive laser. <laughs> yeah, the, the laser is great for... I mean, a lot of the bosses on here, where places we're going to be going, a lot of it is middle-based. So just... To, or or sh I should say central-based on here. So being able to just take this large laser and just fire it directly ahead to for, well quote-unquote massive damage really really helps when you're using the flying pancakes did you <clears throat> i mean you sound like you were impressed by it oh yeah uh the the level three flying pancake charge laser is where it's at uh in terms of of sub weapons it, it's really it's really a good option for a charge weapon it's it's one of the one of the primary reasons to use that that plane. The X, excuse me, XF5U was based upon an earlier prototype. Oh, excuse me, the flying pancake is based on a real experimental aircraft. The Vought, excuse me, Vought, XF5U dubbed the Flying Flapjack. We got to keep the naming in line here. The <laughs> XF5U was based upon an earlier prototype known as the V-173. It was designed to operate at a high top speed but allow for low altitude flying as well as low takeoff and landing speeds. No XF-5U-1 craft were ever flown in combat, let alone in real test flights, and only two prototypes were ever produced. By the time the plane would have been ready for practical use, the U.S. Air Force had already begun a way to move away from propeller planes to jet engines, so it was deemed no longer practical. But, you know, it would have been neat to see like one of these. I know, I know that they built a couple. It would have been neat to maybe see one of these hanging up at the Smithsonian or something. It would definitely would be cool to see in real life. Yeah, and it would be interesting to see how something like that would actually work uh, from a practical standpoint in terms of, you know, watching it in flight and seeing how it maneuvers and so forth. Definitely. The Flying Pancake was introduced to the series with this game, Nine Strikers 1945 2, and as I say, it was def it's definitely one that's going to gar garner the most attention on 
from anyone who starts the game. Is it, yes. it just its name as as aesthetic is totally different than anything that you're going to see in any lineup. Right, it's pretty iconic, and I think, like you say, it's it's so recognizable, and it's one of the things that even people who aren't fans of the Striker series or only casually know of it probably have heard of the Flying Pancake. If you haven't, try it out. All right, moving on, we have the Falk Wolf. As long as the TA-152. It has a strong forward shot with no spread. Its secondary weapon is a giant rocket missile. Fires after at least one power-up is obtained, and more missiles fire with subsequent pickups. Its bomb is a giant A9, excuse me, A9 or A10 rocket. It plows through enemies and blocks enemy fire. Now, the, remember correctly, the rocket never explodes. It just... So like it's like a bowl on a mission to just go plow straight ahead, or or like a rampaging semi. Yeah, it, it just sort of spins around on the screen as it moves from bottom to top, and uh, blocks bullets, and then you know deals damage or takes out enemies along the way. Its charged weapon is a plasma mine. Level one is a small mine, moves quickly but blo- blocks enemy fire. Level two. Is a larger mine, moves a little bit slower. In level 3 is a large mine. Moves very slow, blocks enemy fire for a large radius. This was the charge This charge weapon. It didn't do a lot for me on here. I, I definitely like some of the other options on here. It's cool and it does enough to differentiate. It's like a fighting game character who has this mechanic where like okay this this can do a lot but it's a very hard move move to pull up off it's not like your usual you know, fireball or quarter circle move within a fighting game this is sort of like getting more used to dalson play for you street fighter 2 play it it requires some work and some expertise in order to make really good use of it it's not something that's pick up and play to me. Did you experiment with this that much? I did, and it's interesting that you mentioned fighting games because the thing that I think of with with the the Falk Wolf is that essentially the charge weapon when it creates this uh, plasma mine is that you can you can orient your ship on top of it and move up the screen along with it. So as it's moving up it can be constantly blocking bullets from your position. And so it's it's almost like the shmup equivalent <laughs> of turtling in a fight in a fighting game. Huh. Or or a shield within Gradius. Okay. Yeah. You know, you're you're blocking the enemy fire during that time, but you're able to deal damage and kind of move up the up the screen while you're doing that. And so unlike a, a shield where you get a you know, you get the opportunity to possibly not die when you take a, a hit or two. It allows you to, if you do it right, follow that plasma mine all the way up the screen and not take any damage or not lose any lives as long as you're not running into enemies and, you know, you're able to take, you know, you fire a lot of, of your main cannon while that's happening. But as you said, it requires some some technique and kind of learning how to use it and when to best make use of that. I, I don't think the level one is very useful. 
you know, most of the charge weapons are pretty useful at level one, and so the idea is to kind of spam that. But unless you can stay perfectly within the radius of that of that uh, mine, it's not all that useful at level one because the the mine plasma radius is pretty small, and so because of the large hitbox of the sh of the planes, you really need to stay pretty tightly within that that radius. And so it it really becomes useful at level two, but even more so at level three because it moves so slowly up the screen and it allows you to block enemy fire for a really long time. So for boss fights especially, when you would normally use a charge weapon to handle that, you know, if you go to the bottom of the screen and charge up a level three plasma mine and then just sort of inch up the screen as it's going, you know, instead of relying on a charge weapon, you have the ability to essentially just pelt that boss with regular fire and have effectively immunity from their from their bullets and and attacks. Yeah, you almost have to with this plane. I think about this is one of the uh, slowest moving planes in the lineup. The pa flying pancakes very fast, and the P thirty eight has pretty good speed. But this, its shots are very powerful, but it, it is slow. So I get where they get got to give you the trade-off for the maneuverability. Otherwise, you're just going to be, as we call it within Gradius on here, with zero speed-ups rowing across the stars. Yeah. Well, thank you. The TA-152 was an iteration of an earlier FW-190 plane. The Folkwolf, pronounced Folkwolf was a German aerospace company named partially after founder Henrik Folk that operated from 1923 to 1964. The TA-152 was developed specifically for the German Luftwaffe, but were only in service starting January 1945, so they didn't participate in World War II very long before it was over. Designed to be a higher altitude flyer, similar to the Boeing B-17. I'm sure you can probably do a... B-17 bomber better than me. B-17 bomber. <laughs> uh, what, I'll are take you talking it. About the, the German Luftwaffe? For, yes. for a second there, I almost thought you were going to say a Luftwaffle. And I was thinking, flying pancakes? German Luftwaffles? What are we talking about? Shops or breakfast? <laughs> Somebody's hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy. I'm sure bacon's going to enter the conversation at some point, too. Mmm, <laughs> bacon. Oh, indeed. All right. Well, unfortunately, we don't have bacon after this. We have the KI-84 Hayate. And the Hayate has a main cannon for its strong forward... Excuse me, has a main con cannon as its main shot with... A strong forward fire and with the light spread as it gets powered up. Its secondary weapon, and I'm known to mispronounce this, is a Siusi? Siusui. Siusui, okay. Super Rush homing beacons that target enemies and fire at them until destroyed. Now the bomb, and again, here I go, mispronounce this, I'm sure. Fugaku? Yeah, Fugaku. Fugaku, okay, well. Fugaku covering fire. It's a large Japanese long-range bomber charged. Excuse me, long-range bomber attack, and the charge attack is a fixed suishu. 
Super Rush sets up a group of drones to attack in a specific location for an extended period. It was manufactured by the Nakajima Aircraft Company at the Hayate and nicknamed Frank by Allied Forces. was a formidable plane, and over 3,500 of them were produced during the latter portion of World War II. The Kiai-84 is a single-engine plane that could handle multiple machine guns and could fly at high altitudes, allowing it to reach even some Allied bombers. The Hayati I played with a little bit on here, but it just didn't really suit my playstyle. Did you end up using the ship very much, or this plane? Yeah, actually, um, early on, I kind of developed it as one of the favorites, because even though it wasn't quite as quick as the homing lasers on the flying pancake, the fact that its weapon did seek out targets to destroy made it a good ship to use, plus then its charge weapon, because you could charge it up and then let the the drones go and sit in place and attack uh, an area or a target while you're flying around attacking other targets made it a pretty a pretty good uh, pretty good choice I thought it was a little slow but um, but overall I I had re- reasonable success with it. Yeah, this is the one that I saw most. Used on uh, long plays online when I looked through on there, everyone's using the Hayate because it kept in Strikers 1945, the original game, the sub shots for each plane was options on there. And I'm thankful that they changed it up for this and gave each plane its own sort of distinct personalities, but this is. This is a holdover from the first Strikers 1945 game. And it came, It's as far as I remember, it's the only one that came with the uh, <clears throat> subshot being the options themselves. And they, and I'm not talking about the homie ones, but I'm talking about the ones where you, ones you get for destroying the popcorn enemies and the uh, secondary weapon. Mm. I th- I know that the lightning's the other, the uh, lightning was the other one that that's, all over, but that one has more of a little miniature, or the P-38 has the miniature planes, the heat-seeking miniature planes that come out of there. It doesn't have the options. Right, yeah, but I, I think, and and two, the, the charge weapon, those drones, at level three is fairly devastating, and it lasts a long time, so you can really pelt away at a boss and do a fair amount of damage. All right, moving on, we have the J7W Shinden. Its primary fire is straight ahead only, but very rapid fire when powered up. Its secondary weapon is a heat missile that attaches to an enemy and damages it over time as it passes through. The bomb is a Ryusei Kai Sweet Bombers, a roll of Aichi B7A Ryusei fighters, blocks enemies' fire and fires machine guns at oncoming enemies. The charge shot is a samurai sword. Type 9-8, especially a phantom version of the Chinden, much like the heat missiles that passes through enemies as it damages them. It will clear bullets in its path. In level 1 and 2 create smell, excuse me, create a relatively small phantom, but at level 3 covers nearly half the screen. The Shinden is one that I experienced because of its rapid fire and its high speed of movement. I use this one a lot for experimentation. Trying it there, it's 
very rapid firing, but it's shots like the flying pancake. Its shots aren't very powerful. So if you're not if you're at level one, you're gonna have a tough time. Yes, especially because at level one, it's just a single uh, a single shot coming out of the center of the plane, out of the nose. Uh, whereas a lot of the planes, they at least have a, a double shot, and so much like say 1942, you know, which we covered previously, the double shot at least covers a slightly wider area of effect. And so as you're shooting forward, you know, you may be able to clip enemies with one side or the other a little bit better. Whereas with the Shinden, it's literally, they have to be, you know, you got to be dead on accurate with the, uh, with the, the primary fire uh, until you power up. But I, I did enjoy the heat missiles, and I found them to be relatively useful. Similar to the the charge drones on the Hayate, you can maneuver the plane to in line with an enemy, fire off a, a small batch of the heat missiles, and then move on to, say, another medium-sized enemy or what have you, uh, and let those heat missiles kind of go up and, and damage that enemy. And even if they don't take it out, a lot of times you'd find that the, the medium-sized planes or tanks or enemies would be flashing red, uh, meaning that they were almost ready to, to die. And so you could be doing damage to them even when you're not right in front of them. And then you can kind of swing back over and, you know, score the final blow on them. And so that was, there was some utility with that. Um, I experimented with the Shinden somewhat, but ultimately I did not find it to be a plane that was easy enough to use and strong enough for me to uh, really be good for my playstyle. Yeah, I suppose previously I mentioned there, you have to have it constantly powered up. It's almost like it sort of suffers from Gradius Syndrome, or this type of playstyle for there. It's great when you're going, but if you get hit once, uh, well, you might want to look at restarting. Oh, yeah. Thankfully, within the, these, on the, most of the levels are going to be about three to five minutes each, so it's not too bad in a game like this. Right. Uh, so, this plane is piloted by Aiden, and due to its first appearance in Samurai Aces, a crossover link between the Samurai Tengai series and the Striker series. Much like the VF-5U, the 7J, sorry, J7W Shinden, Japanese for Magnificent Lightning, never got past the prototype stage. It was intended for short-range missions, and was to have multiple 30mm cannons at the front of the craft. It's distinguished by wings at the rear of the plane rather than the front or the middle, and the propeller engine was at the rear as well. It, it definitely, had, like the Flying Pancake, has an iconic design. Yeah, it has a very distinctive look, and it, it's also interesting because when you look at photographs of the, of the prototype that they built, it, looks, it almost looks shorter than the version that appears in the game. And so I don't know if that was a design choice in the game, to change it up a little bit and make it look a little sleeker or you know what what the reason was for that but yeah the the pictures the photos that i saw of the actual shinden prototype made it look shorter than what you would think based on how it looks in the game moving on to another fan favorite here we have the dh-98 mosquito its main weapon is strong forward fire with light spread 
Its secondary weapon is a consecutive rocket missile, which quickly fires powerful forward missiles out after the first power-up. The bomb is the Mosquito Attackers, a row of mosquito jets to block enemy fire and bomb targets. The charged weapon is a Royal Napalm, which creates a column of exploding napalm that chain reacts through the top of the screen. The D. Halavan DH-98 Mosquito was a unique British plane, and its frame and body were mostly wood, making it ideal for slipping past radar detection. Yeah, this is a plane that you, you definitely did not want to get shot at. I mean, it was, wasn't it balsa wood, if I remember correctly? Uh, it's made you out know of... what? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the article that I read specified that. Okay. I I could just be pulling this off the top of my head. But either way, it's, it's it was meant to be very light, strike very, very fast, burn things, and then get out. Yeah. Definitely not to be confused with the mosquito of our previous episode either. <laughs> <laughs> it was manufactured and in use by the British RAF from 1940 to 1950 by the D. Holland Aircraft Company. Several variants of the craft exist, built for different reasons. Over 1,000 of them were built by D. Holland's Canadian branch, as well as some who were constructed in Australia. This plane has definitely got a unique play style on there. I can't, didn't, I got used to the way that the plane handles the shots and stuff. But I didn't get quite used to the sub weapon there. I think that you have a little bit of a better grasp on how to deal, the sub weapon works for this plane. Yeah, I I took to the mosquito quite a bit toward the end of the month because I really like, in similar fashion to the Shinden. With the heat missile, the uh, the rocket missiles that the mosquito fires out, you know, you can kind of position your mosquito parallel to, or, or you know, right underneath a larger plane, let it fire off a, a volley of these missiles, and then move away and, and strike at other targets, and it's going to be damaging that uh, that target up ahead to where you fire those missiles off. And so you can kind of do that in these sort of, you know, surgical strikes of, of move around to where uh, a medium-sized enemy or turret or tank or something is going to be. Let it fire a volley of missiles and then quickly move somewhere else and have it fire another volley and just kind of keep doing that to utilize those missiles. And then, of course, the unlike the Shinden, since the mosquito has a little bit of a light spread as you're powering up, you're covering more ground, so you're able to take out more popcorn enemies more quickly and efficiently that way. Um, and so, even though it's not the fastest plane out there, I felt like the the spread and the the missiles really helped to compensate for that. Uh, all right. Speaking of spread and missiles and sub-weapons, uh... Let's talk about how we actually play the game. Yeah. So, obviously, like most sh- shoot-em-ups, um, you know, you've got standard eight-way movement with a joystick uh, on the original arcade cabinet, and, of course, with a, a D-pad or joystick or whatever your preferred control method is on the various console versions. The game has two action buttons, your standard fire button and then your bomb or... Uh, you know, uh, attack uh, wave or vector type of 
button. You know, we call it the bomb button because that's kind of become the the standard. But realistically, it's you know each one of the craft as we or each one of these planes as we've described has you know its its bomb attack essentially is is a squadron or or large plane kind of a thing where it comes in and blocks enemy fire and deals some damage to enemies. And so your fire button doubles as your secondary attack button by holding it down in order to charge that up. One of the nice things about the game is that in order to get a rapid fire rate, you don't have to sit there and tap it super fast. By pressing the button down and holding it ever very briefly, it'll shoot out several shots and a volley of whatever your your sub-weapon is. And so you can kind of just tap it methodically, but not have to break your fingers uh, tapping super rapidly in order to get the same effect. And so it's kind of nice to be able to tap, lift, tap, lift, tap, lift, tap, lift, uh, instead of tap, 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 kind of a thing. So that was a nice, uh, I guess you could say, feature of Psycho games in general, uh, because most of their games follow that tactic. But uh, in Strikers 1945-2, you know, we talked about the, the charge weapon, and so how that works is as you're destroying enemies, there's a meter at the bottom of the screen that fills up. You'll notice that when you first start playing, there's the meter there, it's empty, and there's kind of a red X that's over it. Um, once you see the number one, that means that you've activated level one of the charge weapon. And so then you can hold down the fire button for a couple of seconds or whatever it is, and then release that to execute that charge attack. You can of course, continue to destroy enemies and get it up to level 2, and then all of the charge weapons max out at level 3. And as we kind of have mentioned uh, with a couple of the planes there, all of the level 3 attacks are pretty effective and uh, are definitely worth worth utilizing during the course of, of your, uh, your playthrough. If you're playing well and you're destroying all the enemies that come your way, Generally speaking, you will have the ability to build up your meter to level 3, either prior to or during the boss fight. Uh, and so you'll be able to to reach that and be able to then execute that level 3 charge attack against the boss, um, which can be very effective and very helpful. But one of the things that, uh, that Vic Viper said to me when he was watching me on stream and a couple of other people who had played strikers quite a bit echoed this as well is that one of the good tactics during the game is that because your level one uh, weapon charges up so quickly by destroying enemies that you can kind of spam that and so it's a useful thing to be able to utilize that more frequently i kind of reached a point where i was more so charging up to level 3 and then utilizing those against the boss because I found that to be very effective. But I also did the other where I just kind of spammed the charge attack during the course of the level. And that also helps as well in order to take out enemies faster and especially eliminating some of the more problem enemies that, you know, shoot bullet spreads or target you and, and fire bullets at you. It's definitely impressive that this game gives you enough freedom to break from pathing. With it, with the Don Maku games, you have your you're gonna have pathing on here. You're like, okay, I I need to do this in order to get max out the points. There's a set path that that you're 
almost like you know those little marble games where you're rolling it around and you've you're always going to be going a certain way. You got to tilt it just right. It's like trying to follow and do per- a perfect path every time. With the with this game, and I believe it, uh, and I may misquote this on here, but I believe it, it was Zoido who mentioned this that this game gives you freedom to break free from the pathing and to, and to tr- do a little bit of experimentation. Yeah, yeah, it really does. Based on whether you're saving up your charge weapon or spamming it a lot, it can really, really change pretty dynamically how you play. Uh, and you know, a lot with a lot of the games, too, I mean, you're looking at... We've got the one, too, where you use your... Uh, you build up with the use your popcorn enemies to build up your whatever bar you're looking to build up, and then and then you use the breaker or, or whatever your bomb or whatever you have on the boss. But this had sort of a different dynamic with the fact that the bombs aren't just there to save you from bullet patterns or to cancel out from there. You you have the charge shot, which can also do depending upon the plane do. The, do the same thing. It adds a third element into there, which does a lot for the variety. Yeah. And really, in my opinion, helps out with the gameplay on it and creates its own thing. Where Crimson, like, take for example, Crimson Clover on there. You're looking at, you're going to be doing one of two things, right? You're going to be dealing with the popcorn enemies or you're going to be breaking. True. You're going to be alternating between those two things in order to boost up your score. As you mentioned here, you're like, okay, well, it's a viable strategy to always be spamming the level one charged attack, or maybe I hold on to it and then I spam that, and then I can bomb the the boss. That type of variety is something that, to me, will keep me coming back and playing the game. Not to mention, it, you know, it, it, the levels on this game are very bite-sized at being about three to five levels, uh, three to five minutes each. So. It's very approachable, but yet has more of a depth than you'd normally expect out of a shooter. It, it falls some, and as we talked about before, it's not quite a Damaku, but it's not tra- quite a traditional shooter. It rides the line in between, and it does a very good job of it. Yeah. Now, generally speaking, extends are earned at 600,000 points. Uh, alternatively, when you're choosing a difficulty level at the option screen, at least in the console versions, you can set the extend value to 800,000. I don't know why you'd ever want to do that, but it is an option. Uh, I don't know if that's 600,000 points, if that's every 600,000 points you earn an extend, or if it's only at 600,000. Because I think I only got to above 100 or above 1.2 million points once or twice, <laughs> or maybe only once. Uh, so I, I don't I don't remember for sure if it's every 600,000 points or if it's just once at 600,000, but it's, I, I suspect it's every 600,000. And there are seven different difficulty levels in the game. They are as follows. Difficulty one is known as monkey. Difficulty two is known as child. Uh, difficulty three is very easy. Level 4 is easy. Level 5 is normal, and that is the default. Level 6 is hard. And level 7 is very hard. And so as I mentioned there, the, uh, the default difficulty is 5. The game allows you to play through all stages in the first loop, 
But if you want to access the harder second loop, that doesn't open up unless you're playing on normal or higher. You know, I wonder how they play tested this on there. It's like, let, hey, let's let's figure out here. How, I mean, how do you play test a it's not on the difficulty level of monkey on there? I just sorry, I just get them a picture of them actually just all right. Go to the zoo, grab a monkey, get them to play this game. If they can beat it, we're all good. Well, you, you, I'm sure you've heard the expression that uh, you you put a whole bunch of monkeys in a room with pencils and paper, and eventually you'll get Shakespeare. Well, put a bunch of monkeys in a room with (laughs) Sega Saturns and Playstations and copies of this game, and eventually one of them will beat Strikers 1945 too. Eventually. Yes. Uh, It's just perverse one of those, you get the weird, you know, sort of almost farsight-ish picture in your mind here of uh, playtesting with monkeys. So, yeah. Fair enough. Well, and, and in a way, it's almost like Psycho is trolling the fan base. Are, are you playing on monkey because you just want to have an easy time? Or is it because you're terrible at the game, and so they're kind of taunting you a little bit, saying, ha ha, you suck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, that, these days, that would be... Uh, that might be part of the extra DLC. <laughs> you want easy mode? Why, why you pay you pay us on here, a DLC. We'll turn it on for you. It comes in part of this loot box you got to deal with first. Yeah. What, what is it? Uh, you, you cheated yourself and something like that, that meme that was going around? <laughs> oh, jeez. Either, either that, that or... or or these days they would do something like, you know, you've seen this before with like a, they, um, id software games were, were, were pretty good with this, where you the don't hurt me daddy for Wolfenstein oh, 3D. Yeah. I just put, you know, like, they put a, or like put a diaper on your plane or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Going through, you know, that type of stuff. I, I, that type of humor or something that I expect to see. Maybe that's coming in Strikers 2020. Well, hey, if arrow fighters can have a dolphin, strikers can have a monkey. Oh, there we go. DLC character. Monkey difficulty, you get to fly uh, the flying monkey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, <laughs> well, well, let's get back, back to normalcy here and about the normal difficulty. Sure. Well, there are eight stages in the game, and... One of the things that is a staple in a lot of the Psycho games is that the first four are always in a random order. And so, uh, taking some information here from the Strikers fandom page, of the first four stages, you have the North Atlantic Ocean location, and the boss is the Graf Zeppelin, which is an aircraft carrier in its first form. Uh, and then all of these bosses, when you destroy the first form, they all turn into some kind of a mech. Then you have the East China Sea, and the boss is the Siumi Type Zero, which is a flying boat that then, of course, turns into a mech when you destroy the the lower portion of it. You fly over France, and uh, I didn't even put it in the outline because I wasn't even going to attempt to pronounce the, uh, the area that you're flying over. But the boss is the Iron Casket, which is sort of a large airship. Uh, and then you also fly over the Grand Canyon. How would you like to? Sorry, I just wondering. How would you like to fly? 
go, oh, so where are we going to be flying? Well, we've got this top secret military ship. It, it can do a lot. I mean, it's very powerful. Well, what's it called? The Iron Casket. <laughs> that's like, you know, that, that's like, oh, oh wow, that, that's going to inspire confidence in me here. This thing's not going to run into trouble. Yeah. The Iron Casket on there is. It's, you know, why don't they just name it the Titanic? This ship that turns into mech, it's called the Titanic 2. <laughs> Nothing can go wrong. Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, and then uh, then uh, in one of the missions, you fly over the Grand Canyon, and the Both is uh, known as Goliath, which is sort of like Goliath, but without the O. Anyway, it's, a, it's an armored train that, of course, then turns into a mech once you've blown up the, uh, the front of the train. Then from stage five on, uh, they're all the same. And so stage five, you're flying over the Kalahari Desert in Namibia, and you're taking on the boss that's known as Rommel, which is sort of a turret tank fortress thing. Uh, and yes, the name is inspired by, I can't remember exactly, it's a German uh, general or... Desert Fox. What's that? Desert Fox, North African. Ah. Desert Fox, North African campaign. Yes. They're Rommel, yes. The German, German general, I believe it was general, but uh, don't quote me on that part. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, stage six is in Brazil. Then it is over the Madeira Dam. The boss is called the Cross Sinker, which is a large submarine. Then in stage seven, you're in Brazil. You're still in Brazil, and you're at the Cani Industrial Site. Uh, the boss is known as Block Aid, uh, and it is a giant claw tank. And then stage eight is actually at FG. Wait, did you just say giant enemy crabs? <laughs> a giant claw tank. Oh, oh, sorry. I thought you said giant enemy crab. Sorry. Nope. No, no crabs. Uh, and stage eight is uh, the FGR headquarters, and the boss is actually FGR. And it has three different forms. You have the mechanical tentacle alien, the mechanical insectoid alien, and then you have the basis core uh, that you fight there at the end. And none of them transform into a mech. Those do not. Yeah, that's the only boss that does not have a mech form <laughs> throughout the game. Uh, one thing to note about the game is the rank system. And... Uh, so shout out to Kiken from the Shmups forums for, for this. I'm, I'm quoting it here. It says, All Psyche or Shmups use a rank system. Once fully powered up, the rank will increase. To decrease the rank, run into an enemy or two to power down. This will cause various bullet patterns to move slower while dispersing others. Uh, and I'm, I noted here that uh, that is known as a power down in the game. Those who watched my streams know that I was very frustrated with power downs, but knowing this information, perhaps I shouldn't have been because the times when I powered down may have been times that saved my bacon uh, with my flying pancake because uh, I probably ranked down and had less to deal with. Uh, so that's an interesting, an interesting point there. Uh, if you throw in a balanced breakfast joke in here, we're done. <laughs> uh, no, but I could say something about OJ flying the flying pancake. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you could. 
this breakfast humor. <laughs> uh, and as I mentioned before, if you're playing on normal or above, you have access to the second loop if you're inhuman enough to be able to defeat the first loop. But anything below normal difficulty, and you only get to play, th- play through the first loop. And so stage one through eight on, you know, kind of the standard game difficulty. All right, well, let's take a look at the scoring on here. The max bomb stock is nine, with each bomb collected after that is worth 10,000 points. Yes, so... Occasionally throughout the stages, yes, uh, sir. Well, I was going to say, so from a strictly scoring perspective, if you're good enough at the game to where you can you can go without bombing, that's what you want to do, because 10,000 points is quite a, quite a large number given where the scores are at in the game. And so, strictly from a scoring perspective, you're encouraged not to bomb. Even though the way that a lot of the boss fights and level design is set up, panic bombing or, you know, hitting that button to bring in a squadron of planes is kind of your, your normal response. The, in order to really maximize your score, you want to be able to learn the levels, the enemy placements and patterns and all of that really well so that you don't have to use that tactic so you can then bank those and be able to maximize that score. The one thing in conjunction with that is when you die, you lose your bomb stock and it goes back to the default of three. So this is only viable when you're in a when you're in a no miss situation or you know where you're you're not using up any of your lives. Yeah, with the bomb in there, it seemed to at least within this near the end of the stages, they're at least nice enough to give you one plane that you can shoot down and you'll get an extra bomb. Yeah. It's not unforgiving within this, but it's not. They, they encourage you to bomb with the bullet placements and the fact that they give you a bomb on there. But it's also nice that the levels are short enough that you could get used to the enemy placements and avoid it. It's a little difficult in dealing with bombs because with, in this type of game, because with Damaku type games, a bomb is almost sort of like, a, oops, I, I messed up. I'm, I'm going to lose my run. I'm going to lose my multiplier. So I've got to bomb in order to help keep my score going. But with this... I, I would more say that bombing's a double-edged sword uh, in this game. Sure. All right, moving on, we have gold bars here. The gold bars are <clears throat> appear after defeating some ground-based enemies. The point value you receive for each bar will depend upon the state. You get 200 points right after the gold bar flashes, 500 when it's closer to a flash, and 1,000 points when it's just before a flash. You'll receive 2,000 points if you grab it when it's flashing. Uh, you know, with, with it with this, I I just ended up most of the time grabbing. I was too busy b- with stuff that was going on screen to try and maximize my point value to make sure everything was flashing. How about you? Yeah, I I attempted to do that a little bit when I first started, but I found that I was concentrating on that too much and dying. <laughs> so I. Uh, so I didn't really do that much. I, I mostly just went and grabbed them when I saw them. Uh, you know, I tried to grab them all if I could, especially if you get a lot of them in a group. Then you'll if you just kind of fly over the group or whatever, typically 
you'll get a couple of 200s, a couple of 500s, maybe a 1,000, and every once in a while you'll luck out and get the 2,000. But yeah, most of the time I just kind of grabbed them so I could get the points, but I didn't really didn't really focus on trying to get the, the maximum points from them because I had a hard time with the, the timing. Yeah, and, and the, this game, I mean, even though it is score-based on... On here, this isn't as dependent as, say, Ducktales. <laughs> on here, you you're not Scrooge McDuck trying to fill up a money vault. On here, you're trying to survive most of it. So it's it's something that, that I think is cool that they implemented. It's just something that in practice is not something that I ever bothered with. Right. All right. So moving on to scoring for enemies here we this is provided to us from a game facts fact by warming blasters we have 200 points for each standard popcorn enemy 500 points for a standard ground tank 2000 points for a heavy ground turret and i believe this is pointed out by ryoto again that if you get close to the ground turrets they will not fire. Yes, Easy Racer mentioned that. I'm sorry, Easy Racer. There, yeah, it's definitely something that I started implementing to my runs when I, as soon as I noticed on there. I thought that, that was a neat touch on there. If only they did that in the Gradius series. That, or especially with Moai heads, it would save many many a life of a Vic Viper. Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> so the. We also have 5,000 points for destroying the first form or shield of a boss. And 2,000 points for each power-up after the fourth pickup. Yeah, and that it kind of introduces, a, from a scoring perspective, a bit of a risk-reward. Because obviously, if you've got four power-ups and you're at the max level, then you're at rank up. So the game is harder. Uh, so then when you're... When you have those opportunities to pick up power-ups beyond that level, you get that bonus point, but then you have to deal with more difficult stuff. Uh, and so there's that push-pull effect of, do I power up all the way and then get the 2,000 points? Or is that not enough to justify always being at the higher rank and having to deal with more bullets, more spread, faster bullets, and all of that. Yeah, it's, for me, for the most part, it was forego the points and deal with the lower rank. <laughs> Moving on, let's take a look at the graphics here. The, the graphics, for me, were a huge improvement over Strikers, the original Strikers 1945. I like the aesthetic of the original game because I, I'm partial to the Sonic Wayne series or the Arrow Fighter series. But this, you can tell this is the game where, where it became its own thing. With the diver As we talked about earlier, diversification of the planes on here. But it, I would say primarily the explosions are done better. It's easier to identify what things are. The, the bullets have their own distinctive styles on there. You, you can tell which one the, the small spreads from the larger spreads on there and with the um, different hitboxes on there 
in the enemy patterns in the or I should say the enemy the enemy sprites are unique they're big they're colorful they're f full of a lot of frames of animation it's very well done package and it's very much an improvement over the first strikers yeah what what are your thoughts on this versus the arrow fighters legacy and um do you believe that this game sort of comes into its own is is like the street fighter 2 to you know, Stri Street Fighter Strikers 1945 2 is Street Fighter 2 compared to Strikers 1945 as is to uh, the original Fighting Street or Street Fighter. Yeah, I would say that's a really good analogy. The original Strikers 1945 is a solid shoot 'em up that effectively takes the Arrow Fighters or Sonic Wings formula and iterates upon it ever so slightly, but doesn't do a whole lot to set itself apart from that previous game. It's it's sort of like a 1.5 version, if you will, of what they were what they did with Arrow Fighters. Whereas Strikers 1945-2, they really pushed past that and began to make it its own thing, as you said, by changing up the the bombers to these squadrons of planes and, and I think there was some of that in the first game, but but more emphasis on the charge attack, you know, adding in these experimental planes and really making the game more colorful and more interesting to look at. Yeah, it really does start to see Strikers 1945 move away from the Arrow Fighters legacy and into becoming its own unique entity. Um, I really like the animations with the squadron bomb attacks and I really like how all the charge attacks look in their different versions, their different levels. And yeah, I mean, the, the game just looks really nice. Uh, that's one of the things that struck me when I first, when I first played the game, uh, is that it just looks really nice. It's very clean, it's detailed, and, and everything just looks really good. Yeah, and I have to bring up the point that... that... With a lot, some of the stuff that we've encountered earlier, when you have a militaristic theme, it can be a little hard for things to start looking samey. And that doesn't happen here, especially looking at some of the bullet patterns that are coming. It could be really easy to have a situation like we had last month with Ghostblade, where you have that stray pink bullet, and you're like, what the heck is this? It just sort of blended in. Or even with that happens sort of an Einhander, where things, it's hard to gauge. I didn't have that problem with this. No. It was Strikers 1945 too. No, the, the only time that I had a problem with with that is if I missed an enemy bullet being fired out because I got too close to one and they kind of sniped me uh, as I was either destroying them or, you know, that kind of a thing where I got a little too close to an enemy and they shot a bullet out at me and because the bullets move fast and because I was so close... I didn't really have any time to react. Or occasionally an enemy would fire a bullet uh, as they were approaching me and kind of moving off the screen, and I had destroyed another enemy that might have been relatively close to me, so then they fired that bullet that went maybe through that other enemy's explosion. And so if I didn't see them fire it specifically, I had a lot less time to react to it. But other than that, all the bullets are 
are bright and colorful. They're generally easy to see against the backgrounds. And yeah, generally speaking, you know, if you get hit by a bullet, it's your fault um, because the game is designed well enough to give you the tools to see that and identify that before it hits you. Yeah, and as we're previously mentioned there, the, the bullets, for the most part, aren't something that, that's going to be a surprise in there. The, even with the larger, the larger bullets fired out by the bosses, I didn't have problems. I mean, I had problems navigating them, sure, as with, mentioned with previous with Psycho games, where it's the bullets are going to be coming at you pretty fast, no matter what. But I didn't have any problems distinguishing between what I could shoot at and or what I could get away with in the game. There. Graphically, it makes its visual or the visual language is easy to interpret and understand. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. It's not 1942, and you're playing with. We were trying to play through, and some of that stuff gets through because you're looking at green planes and you're flying over. Remember when we were last year, I think it was November last year, when we played 1942. As soon as you get away from the the water and you get onto land, how hard it was to detect some of those ships, especially in the uh, sorry airplanes, especially in the NES version, where you have that very limited color palette and everything just sort of started blending in there. Yes, it was really easy to miss those shots. This doesn't have that, and I'm again very thankful for it. One thing I do want to bring up that I encountered a little bit, and I want to find out if you did as well, is had some a little bit of slowdown in the Saturn version. I played the PlayStation version, or the PlayStation 2 version, which is done, if I, I believe it's in 480i because it had the weird borders on it. Mm. It was constantly switching resolutions with the, and seeing the background. But it was easier for me to play that version than go back to the Saturn version. And I'm not sure how much of that was lag introduced by the Framemeister that I was using for the Saturn version versus just letting my, you know, 480i is a lot easier for a TV to, de- for most TVs to just de interlace and take in than having to deal with an upscaler. Hmm. Did you encounter a lot of lag on that? No. And I didn't really notice the slowdown. Whatever slowdown there is in the Saturn version, either I didn't encounter it because I wasn't playing at a high enough difficulty level to get the number of bullets and or enemies on the screen. I guess with the exception of there's just a tiny little bit of slowdown that you notice during the battleship fight. That was the one that turned into a mech, right? The Graf Zeppelin, the the aircraft carrier. There's there's just a, a scant little bit of slowdown that happens with that fight. Uh, during the first phase where you've got tons of planes flying on the screen and all the turrets shooting at you. And then during the second phase, when there's a fair amount of bullet spread, you get just the, the slightest little bit of slowdown. But, you know, I was playing on the Sega Saturn S-Video to my Retro Tank, which just line doubles it, basically, uh, and then converts that to 480p over HDMI. And so... I didn't notice that much. That was probably the the one noticeable place that I felt you could tell that there was slowdown. But 
Everywhere mm. else, I didn't really, I didn't really notice it. I mean, it, the Saturn version runs pretty well. There's, there's, it's not, it wasn't a huge issue, but it was a, a lot of little minor things. I, I just found the PlayStation Two version to be easier for me to navigate. Sure. Either version is definitely serviceable. Absolutely. Moving on, let's talk about the sound and music. The music. You you have run down the notes that the music has an almost MIDI-like sound to it, with a MIDI synthesizer style electric guitar, program drum bits, excuse me, program drum hits, and basic synthesizer sounds. Yeah, the it definitely has. It's not a bombastic. Here, it, it feels very much. Let's say, I'm trying to think of the. Almost like a cat, uh, in some ways, a Casio keyboard type quality to it is is very simplistic, but it definitely does a good job. One of the things that I, I've never quite latched on to the music in this game, other than getting a couple of the melodies stuck in my head, some of that is because of this sort of MIDI style instrumentation. I'm not a big fan of MIDI. MIDI instrumentation or, you know, the old days of Windows computers and early MIDI files. You know, it was kind of neat at first, but for me, it kind of wears thin pretty quickly. Uh, I love chiptune, even stuff that's a little bit more harsh, like the the PSG chip that's in the Master System or or early Atari 2600 and, and ColecoVision type systems where the sounds are, are very bold and sometimes not very tuneful uh, sort of beeps and, and so forth. But then I also love FM uh, synthesis and things like that in, in a lot of later arcade games. And you, know, you start to get into some FM synthesis in the 16-bit era. Uh, and then, of course, uh, in the 32-bit era, either using different kinds of programmed instrumentations that were a lot more robust sounding. Um, you know, there, there are some implementations of MIDI that I like or that I think sound really good and make sense for the for the context. You know, Final Fantasy VII on the PlayStation has kind of a MIDI type of, of sound to it. But for some reason, that sounds less tinny and there's a warmth to it that this game doesn't have. This game has that more harsh MIDI kind of of sound and feel to it. I can't quite put my finger on it other than to say that the, I like the music itself well enough that what I would really like to do is to, to hear someone cover some of the good tracks on here with real instruments based on what they're approximating in the game's original soundtrack. Or I'd like to see in, in Strikers 2020, for example, I would love to see them revisit some of the tunes from past Strikers games, but do those in updated either instrument sets that you can do with, uh, with music to create this stuff or to actually do live instrumentation and, uh, you know, produce that kind of a thing for the game to take some of these tunes and really make them sound awesome. Yeah, I mean, like like I put in the notes here, it's energetic music, and it's definitely better than the first Strikers, but something about it to me just doesn't work 100%. Yeah, 
Yeah, and I I, I think the, the the barrier here is that it works well within the game. It's definitely an improvement of the first game, but you're not going to find yourself humming the tunes outside of the game. It doesn't have that staying power in your mind. Like, if you mentioned to everybody Super Mario Brothers, and they're going to start humming the tune <laughs> of, the per, of the first game. Or you talk about The Legend of Zelda and your things, but there's no... Or even Gradius, you know, you're going to get the, um, the Challenger music there coming. Everyone, there's nothing iconic about the soundtrack. It's very, it's very good at keeping you engaged in the game, but it doesn't tilt the, it doesn't tilt on the spectrum one way or the other. You're not going to get it memorable, but it's not going to be 1942. Please give me some earplugs. It's, it, it it's squarely at you know a little bit a little bit better than being right in the middle, and I I, I guess the word for it is serviceable, and maybe serviceable is a little bit harsh, but it it does a, it does a job, you, but you again you're not going to be going humming these tunes outside, or playing or you're not going to see remakes or covers of these on YouTube. Sure. And that's the thing. I would like to, because I'd like to hear what some of these things would sound like if they were done with more full, robust instrumentation that had a, a bigger sound to it. Um, because there are a couple of good melodies in some of these songs, but I don't know. Just the, the way that the instrumentation was done, it didn't grab me. I hear it. Yeah, it's, it's definitely that... If it if it wasn't so, if it wasn't MIDI and maybe a little bit more Red Book done with uh, actual actual instruments, it may have gotten maybe something more memorable for you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, when a lot of the Saturn games that have become favorites of mine over the years are games that have Red Book soundtracks. I mean, things like Galactic Attack and Darius Gaiden. Now, of course, those two are both Zuntada soundtracks, so they're going to be legendary anyway. Uh, and, and as far as I'm concerned, that was during their best period. But, you know, even stuff like, uh, like Virtual On, the Virtual On soundtrack is amazing. And it's Red Book Audio, so, you know, you can pop that in the CD player and listen to it. And so stuff like that, a lot of those Saturn games that really stuck with me were games that had those those great soundtracks. And a lot of that was just because that format allowed them to do more with the instrumentation. Even if it was Yellow Book Audio, where it was a lower quality, but it was still something that they could stream from the disc, that would give it a little bit better sound quality and, and the ability to do more in terms of instrumentation. Now, of course, I know that... This was an arcade game, and so this is probably the music is probably what the arcade hardware that they were using was capable of doing. But it's still, you know, I still feel like if it could have had a a more robust sound to it, that you know they could have done it could have sounded better and maybe stuck out more. Fair enough. Now that we've given our impressions of the game, let's move on to some of the R of Generation community. We have Zoido here saying, Gentlemen, expect my participation. Later post, no progress on normal so far, but I got a monkey clear yesterday. Well, congratulations on the monkey clear. 
A clear is a clear. Later post. Final thoughts. Oh, look, a power-up. Nice, let me just pick this up. Ah, uh, crap. <laughs> yeah, and I. To so your response was, yeah, that's gone. Yeah, I, I quoted his uh, his post and I said, uh, uh, laugh out loud. That's definitely going in the podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> his response was, it gets me every time. It's like I learned nothing from playing Psycho games. I somehow don't have the patience. I play every day, but just a few runs and then lose it. I often experience that with Psycho games. Well, I don't think you're alone in that one. I still like them and think they're good shooters. Maybe I'm too nervous. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's almost like this game is made to induce panic attacks in people. <laughs> it really is uh, that that sort of panic thing that you you know that we've mentioned a couple of times. It, it really does come into play. Easy Racer jumped in and he said, "I'll be on PS One." Uh, and then a few posts later, he says, First trip to 1-3 on difficulty 4. I had never played this before, and my initial impressions of it, sometimes you just want to blow stuff up, and this game does a great job of scratching that itch. Lots of fun so far. Hopefully I can make progress. Later in the, in the uh, thread, he says, This game is awesome. It's an adrenaline thrill ride, but I can tell I've gotten better at shmups in the past year, and some of the ways I'm tackling the levels here. Love the soundtrack, love the graphics and theming. Love the little details that make it more playable, like only losing power levels if you touch other craft and getting at least one power-up right away after your death. Uh, and that's one, one thing that we didn't note before, is that when you die, usually there will be an enemy squadron that will come down, and you'll usually have opportunities to pick up at least one, if not two, power-ups. Uh, he says, really only two pl complaints so far. Flying in the lower left edge of the screen can be difficult because the power meter covers up your ship, and I wish you didn't lose all your bombs when you die. I tried all planes and kept track of the level order. All the planes feel comfortable and have their strengths, but I've been doing the best with the Flying Pancake and Hayate so far. The only plane I feel like I struggle with is Shinden, and even then... It could be a very good choice for an expert. I also have noticed that both times I made it to level 5, I played the Iron Casket stage last. One last note, on my high score run, I was excruciatingly close to reaching 1-6. I died at the boss of 1-5, and after dying, my last shots connected with the boss and triggered its explosion sequence. So close. Goal is to reach 1-7 on... 1C. I'm not sure what he means though that. Uh, Views continues to reach 1.6, but man, is that level hard. Uh, so then later in the thread he says, So after my last post of scores, I realized that most had upped the difficulty to 5. Got this middle of last week, but hadn't gotten it posted. Uh, which, of course, then he posted a score with that. He says, Also, yesterday got a chance to play it two-player for the first time, and it really works well as a two-player game. Bullet patterns and frequency seems to be exactly the same as one player, and the hardest change for me is that I would get confused as to which plane I was controlling, as there was so much action on the screen. The other thing I noticed about two-player is it works better if you coordinate bomb attacks and call out power-ups during play. 
We did a full run-through on Difficulty 4 with Continues, and I can't imagine getting through some of the later stages, one player, one CC. Still awesome, though. Uh, and then he says later, closing in on the one CC difficulty, uh, one CC on difficulty three. Forgot about the mini boss's laser attack in one eight. <laughs> yes, uh, haven't been to one eight much, but pretty consistently reach one seven. I've settled in on using the F five U. It's an excellent. Its excellent speed is nice, but its real bonus is its special power up attack when charged to level three. Works awesome on bosses, and is better than the bomb attacks. Uh, side note, I had shown the game to my kids earlier in the month, and when I started the run, my 8-year-old daughter walks in and yells excitedly, You're using the pancake! Taught her well. <laughs> uh, uh, he says, So I've been focusing my time on two goals, getting a 1cc on difficulty 3, very easy, and getting to 1-5 on difficulty 7, very hard. Closing in on both goals. Died on the final ba boss on a very easy run. Very hard isn't as crazy as you might think. It's just that everything, and I mean everything, shoots. So if you don't take out enemies extremely quick, it doesn't take long for the screen to be littered with bullets. Boss shots also move way faster. But it's really good practice for the easier difficulties, as actual enemy placement remains the same for the most part. In all of my runs, I can definitely say that the Siumi stage gives the most trouble out of the first four, so I always hope I draw it first. Goliath is probably the easiest stage for me, but the boss battle has a different strategy if it's on 1-3 or 1-4. Uh, then later he says, got the 1cc on difficulty 3 tonight. Surprised me, too, because I used up all my spare lives getting through the 1-7 boss, and somehow managed through 1-8 without a death. I have noticed one trick to help. On turrets, not planes or vehicles, once you get close enough to them, they will not fire, so it's advantageous to get as close as you can as soon as you can. And then Easy Racer offers some final thoughts uh, on the game at the end of the thread. He said, Sad to see this playthrough end. I feel like I could fill up a whole page of info on all the little details I noticed playing this game. But I think what drew me in the most is it contains elements that you find in other successful game genres. One of the best parts about running gun shooters is just going in guns blazing and wreaking havoc. This has that. One of the best parts about racing games is knowing the track or terrain, quickly reacting to changing elements, and with each playthrough, finding ways to become just a smidge more efficient doing it. Strikers has that covered too. The aesthetics are fun too, with its World War II meets mechs vibe. The visuals and soundtrack are well done, the controls are excellent, and admittedly, I didn't notice until the last day of the month that it was analog compatible. And it's one of the first shmups where every plane seems to be balanced, letting the player truly find the one that suits their play style. I think I, what I like most about this game is it rewards you for taking risks, giving you lots of ways through each level depending on where you decide to go. I think if you compared all the community playthroughs on a game like Gradius 3, they'd look fairly similar in the way players approach each level. On this, I think there would be a lot of different strategies coming forth. 
I know I'll come back to this game at some point in the future. Besides, it's one of the few games I have that I can attempt a pacifist run. No shots fired. Thanks for the idea, Duke Togo. I think they probably discussed that during one of my streams, if I remember correctly. One last comment. I was lucky enough to play this two-player with a friend, and it was a fantastic two-player co-op. Other than, if you think there's a lot going on with one player, imagine doubling that. Thanks for introducing me to me to a new favorite. Uh, and that, I, I loved reading that on the thread because, and I know we've said this multiple times, but that is what the Shmup Club is all about. Uh, you know, we're, we're taking these games and we're exposing people to them. You know, it, it's, it's not just giving you and I an excuse and people in the club an excuse to pull a game off their shelf that either they've neglected or, well, I bought this, but then I never really played it. And so, well, okay, now this is a good excuse to finally play it. But this is a great example of, of someone jumping into a game that they hadn't heard of or that they hadn't played before and then really gelling with it. And so I love hearing about these kinds of experiences. And, you know, I talked to Easy Racer offline during the month uh, because he and I are, are friends and, and he really enjoyed this game and so i was very happy to hear that he really took to it and and put a lot of time and and uh and thought into into this and, and so I, I really think that was pretty cool yeah it's it definitely great to hear somebody discover a new favorite or to just even sit down and enjoy a game that they've had loitering around on their shelf I mean, this is what the, as you mentioned earlier, this is what the Schmuck Club is all about. And even I had, I mean, I had this thing, sorry, I had the game sitting around on my shelf for quite a while now. I had managed to pick up a PlayStation copy for oh, probably about five or ten bucks, you know, several years ago, but I had never really touched the thing and definitely, definitely impressed with the game there. And I am looking forward to grabbing one of the collections for the Switch and just playing on there, or or even trying Tate mode, because uh, the game, even when you're playing it on Saturn or the PlayStation, PlayStation 2, it seems much more... Or a much better fit to play it in Tate than to play it in Yoko. Uh, yes, for sure. Uh, all right. We have, speaking of Duke Togo, we have participation notes from him. Says, I'll be in with the Saturn version. Maybe I'll stand a chance on monkey difficulty. <laughs> uh, I think that, I think he did a lot better than monkey difficulty on this one. Says, I'm hot garbage at this, but I did sneak in a few games in tonight. Next day, got a better run today, still getting a feel for which planes I prefer. But the Hayate seems pretty good. And the Hayate is, to me, uh, I liked it, the, the Tommy, but it felt maybe just a little bit slow for the small the bullet patterns that, that or the damaku light style bullet patterns that the larger enemies the bosses would give or the uh, mid bosses maybe i just need to as the dark souls players say get good but <laughs> uh, i stuck mostly to, to the fly the flying pancake yeah 
Although the mosquito seems to be calling my name right now. <coughs> See, there are some levels that I'm much happier in seeing earlier in the rotation rather than later. I think it would be better balanced with just a standard level layout. I guess the upside is I don't get burned out since I don't keep hitting the same brick wall. That's one of the things that we didn't get on here is the rotation helps keep things fresh and feel like a game on there. And even the shorter levels on there definitely are a plus to this game. It's a much more focused than what you normally... I feel like with some of the Gradius 3 levels I was playing through, like, does this thing have an end? It feels like it's going on forever. I've been <laughs> in the... Uh, you know where you're going through the uh, spaghetti meatball stage? Oh, yeah. On there, the the volcano and stuff, and you're just going through it, just drilling and drilling and drilling through all that stuff. That part felt like it dragged on, where where all this stuff is as is the game style. It moves at a quick brisk pace, and before you know it, you're moving on to something else. And no particular stage overstays its welcome. Absolutely. Later post by Duke Togo says, "I just wanted to experience the whole game. I just got clear on monkey difficulty. Well, congratulations." I really enjoy playing the game this way as it's a lot of fun just to shoot things. Oh, I definitely agree. I'd like to see someone have at it. Maybe someone will give that a go for blazing lasers. Foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> so Vic Viper Mark II jumped in and says, Oh yes, I'm in for sure. Uh, and then we didn't see him for, uh, other than in my streams, we didn't see him for about half the month, but he he posted halfway through the month, and he says, Well, after a ton of practice with all six planes, I finally managed to 1cc it on the second loop on normal difficulty. Despite liking the Mosquito more, I ended up with uh, getting more points with the Hayate instead. To be fair, they're both very balanced, but the Mosquito is more direct with its fast missiles. Once the second loop starts, you're glued to your seat. Everything becomes a memorization. This was especially hard for the slower planes like the Fokker Wolf and the Lightning, both of which I had to run through multiple times before I got the hang of it. So a big congratulations to you, Vic, for a two-loop, uh, one-all of the game, or two-all, I guess you could say. And uh, I think you're the only one who, in the in the playthrough, who actually made it through or even made it to the second loop. I don't think the rest of us were uh, hardy enough to accomplish that. <laughs> well, congratulations! I definitely couldn't do it. I just maybe I maybe I just need to get, start playing some more of Gradius Three Arcade and to get good enough, and then head back to this to this game. Oh, geez, that's this game's easy compared to <laughs> Gradius Three. Uh, yeah, but none of the none of the planes in uh, Strikers nineteen forty five are slow enough that it makes you feel like you're swimming in pudding. Like the oh. like the Vic Viper's <laughs> default speed. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's almost like it... Uh, I swear with those games on there, as we mentioned, like rolling across the stars, it's almost like it's got a parking boot on or something. Or someone someone, someone left with the parking brake on. It's a spaceship. It takes off. Huh. Uh We've got another participant here, Mr. Stubbs. I'm not very good at shmups, but I'm in on this one. I'll be playing the Switch version. Later post. I've been able to make it to third level a few times. I feel like I'm improving in every attempt, so hopefully that continues. 
And thank you for joining us and giving this game a shot. I'm glad you enjoyed playing it. It's definitely a game that is mature. Is you can get up a little pick up and play, and you can get it. Even even playing a couple levels, you get a lot of enjoyment out of. And hopefully, you join us for our, our next shmup in August here, and give that a try as well. Is it is definitely a well, I should say. I would call it a modern classic. What would you call it? Yeah, that's probably a good way to put it. Uh, and then finally, uh, participation-wise, we had Coin Tengoku, who says, Hey guys, count me in on this one. I'll be playing it on MAME. And he responded to, to Mr. Stubbs and says, No need to be good, Mr. Stubbs. Which uh, we definitely echo. Uh, and then he offered some final thoughts at the end of the thread and says... I might be too late for the podcast, but here is my last stretch on Strikers 1945-2. And uh, he posted a score with that. It's a tough game to strategize other than getting lucky. I noticed that bullets were sometimes faster on some levels than others on some of my runs with the same ship. I barely got to 1-7 and died right away. But I still got to 1-7. But it took me all month. Overall, I kind of got used to playing it, even though the bullets were hard to see at first. I think it was pretty fun, and would recommend it to shmup players. And I wonder if noticing that some bullets were faster on some levels than on others, uh, using the same plane, if some of that might have been a rank situation, where he might have been ranked up and the bullets were really fast, and then in other areas he was ranked down so they didn't seem as fast. Yeah, I mean, the bullets move pretty fast in general in this game. That's true. And so, if you aren't if you aren't prepared for it, it, it could catch you a little bit unawares. There, I mean, with the, most people have played some sort of Gradius game, and that one you can see the bullets. It's hard to move out of the way of them, but you can see them. In some in Psycho games, I think uh, Sir Flashmanch on there. So all these bullets stay on screen for like one frame, and that's it. So this, this stuff really flies through. Yeah. All right. Would you like to take? Take us through the high scores of the month. Sure. Um, on the monkey difficulty, I got a 1cc, and I had a score of 1,232,900 points. And I put my score here because it's the only one that was posted in the thread for monkey that was that was this high. Uh, I know Duke Togo got a clear on monkey, but he only posted his end screen and not his score. Um, so I can only assume that he wasn't either happy with it or didn't care to post the score. And I think I'm the only one who posted uh, a score on the child difficulty level as well. I managed to get the 1cc of that uh, and got 1,160,800 points. On difficulty 3, or very easy, uh, Easy Racer, as we mentioned before, got uh, the 1cc and got one million. 170,300 points. Uh, Easy Racer also, incidentally, had the highest score on difficulty 4, or Easy, with uh, 497,800 points, and he made his goal of getting to 1-5 on that. And then on Normal, of course, as we mentioned before, Vic Viper got the 2-all, and he ended up with 2 million... Uh, 486,400 points. 
Uh, and then on very hard difficulty, since Easy Racer mentioned that, he actually made it to uh, 1.5 on very hard and ended up with 464,400 points. So really good participation through the month from everybody, and especially Easy Racer with so many uh, so many scores being submitted and kind of sweeping the scoreboard a little bit there. Uh, now, I don't have it in the outline, but I wanted to make special mention of someone who happened to be posting scores for Strikers 1945-2 during the course of the month, and that is a Japanese player known as uh, DBS. And the, the Twitter handle is is ridiculously long and a little bit difficult, but it's at DBS. Q-A-W-S-E-D-R-F-T-G-Y-H. I'm not 100% sure what that all stands for, but apparently this person is a highly skilled Strikers player because uh, they have gone through and beat Strikers 1945-2 multiple times and was using the Mosquito during the course of, of the month. And... Uh, on, uh, what was it, July 25th, managed to break through a, 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 a score barrier that apparently hadn't been done before, which was 3.4 million. Uh, and so they got 3,408,700 points using the Mosquito. And then a couple of days, uh, a couple of days later, uh, or just a couple of days ago, I guess at this point, got 3,430,000 points. And so as far as I know, that's that's kind of the highest competition score in the game. And I believe that uh, DBS is doing that on, on real arcade hardware, because that's kind of the normal thing in Japan, is to do the competition on the arcade board. Um, but I'm not 100% sure about that. But anyway, I thought that was kind of neat that that uh, DBS was doing that during the month that we were actually focusing on the game and managed to break that score goal during that time. And so that I thought that was kind of just a neat um, kind of a neat little side thing that I would throw in there. Honorable mention. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, very impressive. Yeah. Can you break down your final thoughts for this game? Yeah. Uh, one thing that I haven't mentioned about Strikers 1945-2 is that I've owned this game for a long time. It's actually the very first import video game that I ever purchased. I bought it from National Console Support way back in probably 99 or 2000. And, you know, it was still sealed when I got it. I paid full price. I still have it complete with the Obi. And it kind of started what I will call my love-hate relationship with Psycho Shmups. I enjoy the games in terms of their design and how they play and all of that, but I have a difficult time with the, as we kind of a kind of mentioned, the sort of quasi-Danmaku sort of thing where it rides that line between a traditional shoot-em-up and a Danmaku by having fast bullet patterns that come at you that are more difficult to dodge, not because the patterns are super dense necessarily, although there are a few that are a little dense, 
but because the hitboxes on the planes are a little bit larger. So unlike a, a true Danmaku game, you know, something like a cave style or a Crimson Clover or that kind of a thing, most of the plane is your hitbox. And so you have, you're a lot more vulnerable than you would be in some other games of this type. So I've never quite, I've never quite got on very well with Psycho games and with Strikers 1945-2 in particular. So in a way, I'm glad that we revisited the game or that I revisited the game this month, this last month, because it gave me an opportunity to, or an excuse to really focus on the game and try to get good at it, try to play it in, in a manner that was much more more focused and, and less casual than what I've done in the past. I was happy to get the clear on Monkey and on Child. Uh, I think with a little bit more practice, I probably could get the clear on very easy. Beyond that, I don't know. It, it might take take more effort, but I'm glad I revisited it because it gave me a little bit more insight into the design ethos that Psycho had for their games and makes me think that with a little bit more practice and, you know, focusing on these kinds of games more, that maybe I'll have better luck at them. So a game of theirs that I like more or that I've enjoyed more, such as Gunbird 2 or Dragon Blaze, I might actually stand a pretty good chance of of getting a reasonable first loop clear in one of those games, even if it's not on the normal difficulty level. So it, it's given me a more of an appreciation for Psycho than perhaps I, I had previously. Well, definitely well said. I echo those statements and say that it, it's... Psycho games are something that I haven't played a lot of before, but it's so interesting to see their approach. Stuff that's not quite, as we mentioned before, not quite Damaku, but not quite, quite standard shmup. And it's its own little, its own thing, and it's done well enough that any time I died, I wasn't frustrated at the game, but more so I thought frustrated with my lack of skill. And seeing how people are able to overcome this definitely gives me cause for wanting to go back and try in different chips, such as a mosquito, try again with a mosquito, or maybe even try a little bit more with a Hayate and see if I can find something that works for me. The, it's interesting that the, that the pathing, although a lot of it's fixed, it can be changed up a little bit more than what you get in your standard STG or uh, Damaku game. I definitely like the aesthetic of it and the music. Well, I'm, I'm having trouble pulling up any of the tracks out of the top of my head. Definitely didn't make me want to reach for, reach for my CD player or my MP3 player. It's a well-done game that knows what it is, and I would definitely highly recommend it to anybody who was interested in shmups. Because it doesn't have... It has a barrier of entry but it's not high enough where it's going to equal frustration. And that, to me, is something that everybody... This game is something to me that everybody who is interested in these types of games should play. Absolutely. And I think Strikers 1945-2 is an ideal 
entry point into the Psycho canon, if you'll pardon the pun. You know, it's a good it's a good introduction to their games and a strong entry in you know their list of of STGs. And so it's a good place to start if you're looking to kind of explore Psycho's shoot 'em up library. Yeah, I'd say that or Gunbird. Yeah. yeah. But we'll get to Gunbird another time. Speaking of getting to next shmup, our shmup for August is Blazing Later, excuse me, Blazing Lasers, aka Gunhead, for the TurboGrafx 16 and the PC Engine. In September, we are going with, I believe it's our first Sega shmup. It is. Yeah, it is Zaxxon, which of course was originally released in arcades in 1982, I believe, uh, and then received uh, versions on many home platforms, such as the ColecoVision, which is uh, relatively well-known, a unique Atari 2600 version. Uh, it was also on the Intellivision, uh, Atari's 8-bit computer line, there's a relatively good version on the Commodore 64 that I actually remember playing as a kid because my neighbor had that. Uh, then on the PS2, the Sega Genesis collection, that is available on that. And then the arcade version is also on the uh, Sonic's Ultimate Genesis collection that was out on the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360. So lots of choices there. And... One other thing to note is the tur- the tur- uh, TurboGrafx Blazing Lasers version is available as a downloadable on the Wii U uh, eShop. So for those of you who don't own a TurboGrafx or a PC Engine, that is another way to access that game uh, so that you can join us for August. Yeah, aside from asking Kanye West for help. <laughs> uh. Um, we'd like to thank everybody who helped make this a great participation—excuse me, great participation month—as well as Sir Flash of Studio Muppets for the bullet. Excuse me, Studio Muppets Bullet Heaven for the logo. Yes, and of course uh, we've mentioned it every month, and we're going to keep mentioning it. We do have T-shirts. Uh, I'm wearing mine right now, uh, as I always do when we record the podcast. And uh, you can go to redbubble.com and search for Shoot the Core or Shoot the Core-Cast, and this will be a top result. And uh, buy a t-shirt, wear it proudly. They come in many different colors, so you can choose your favorite and uh, represent the podcast. Spread the word. i also like to thank Kogosu for the intro and outro music, the R of Generation playcast, and the our generation beat the licensed NES library group, <laughs> and also like to thank um, some guy named Metalfro for uh, streaming and uh, all he does for the Shmup Club of the Month. Why, thank you. Yes, uh, make sure you check me out on uh, YouTube. I'm on Twitter as Game Boy Guru. I'm on Twitch as Guru Game Boy. And I'm also, uh, just as of today, uh, as I'm rebuilding my streaming box, which kind of took a nosedive the last couple of days, I am now signed up on Mixer. So I'm going to be streaming on Mixer as well as Game Boy Guru. 
So if Mixer is your jam... Chasing that ninja money. <laughs> well, probably not because I don't play Fortnite, but, you know, uh, maybe we'll get a, a stray viewer or two on Mixer who are into retro or shoot 'em ups <laughs> You never know, but the more people playing shmups, the better. Who knows? Maybe... Maybe people will watch me streaming Zaxxon on uh, Mixer and decide that I'm the next ninja. (laughs) (laughs) Only if you Zaxxon and Zax off. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) If you made it this far into the podcast, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Yes. We will see you next time.